0: Well, good morning. morning. So you may have been surprised uh, to know that I was going to be up here this morning. I don't think we mentioned this last week, although we did mention the elder retreat. Uh, We decided a couple of weeks ago, since I could have some extra time to prepare if we decided this, uh, that Dan wouldn't have to preach the same week of the elder retreat so that he could focus on the business we had to do there. And so, thank you for those of you, those of you who prayed for us. Uh, as I said in, in the prayer, we did accomplish the business that God gave us to do, and there's much work to be done, so please continue to pray. Uh, one note, and I'll blame this on the elders' retreat also, uh, <laughs> uh, I gave my information to Nita fairly early this week, and, and I was nearly done with the sermon, but I didn't circle back around to the title, so I'm going to make a slight change to the title uh, although you will see that much of this focuses on the God of new creation, uh, a more accurate title is going to be the long awaited hope of new creation. The long awaited hope of new creation. Perhaps you've heard the common observation that time is one of the great equalizers. It doesn't matter your financial resources, your fame, or your power, if you had the billions of an Elon Musk or a Jeff Bezos, or say, you commanded the world's most powerful military, you still could do nothing to change time. You can't make it go faster, you can't stop it, you can't turn it back. You can't get any more time in your day. It doesn't matter if you're a billionaire, or even if you're the federal government. No human, and no human institution, can do anything to change the realities of time. We humans in the face of time are completely impotent. Seeing as how this is the case, how should we think about time or about our relationship to time? Well, there are a lot of ways we could go with this. For example, we should be good stewards of our time. We should be generous and not selfish with our time. I have something specific in mind in terms of how the timing of things can be a challenge for us. Specifically, how should we think about the timing of God's plans for us? Do you ever struggle with the fact that the Bible promises so many wonderful things? But when you look at your life, your loved ones, and the world around you, in a lot of ways, reality doesn't look much like the eternal life and blessing and joy God has promised. Is that ever a struggle? I know that it is for many of you, and I know that it is for me. And the Bible knows this too. The Apostle Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 4, where he writes, For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. In Philippians 1 verses 23 and 24, Paul applies this longing to himself in another context. He says, But I am hard-pressed between the two, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet, to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Can you identify with Paul in these texts? Is the knowledge that you have all these great promises, but that for now you're stuck in this body? continuing to struggle with sin, continuing to live in the midst of the effects of sin? Do you sometimes wish you could get to eternity faster? Especially if you or your loved one are suffering from health problems that you can't do anything about. Do things like these and a host of other things make you sometimes wish you could speed things up and make all God's promises of a new creation come true right now? If your answer is no, then I'm sorry. (laughs) But my answer is yes, I do wish that, sometimes and even often. And as I studied this text over the past week or two, I found myself so encouraged. And I hope that you will be also, as we find here in Genesis 8, three facts that combine to show the perfect timing and the certainty of God's promised new creation. I want to ask you to open your Bibles and to please stand with me. And as I read and you follow along, be watching for evidences that we are not unique in this as we in our smallness, in our impotence, wait on God's perfect timing to bring about his promises of new creation. This is the word of God from Genesis chapter 8. Then God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark. And God caused a wind to pass over the earth, and the waters subsided. Also, the fountains of the deep and the floodgates of the sky were closed, and the rain from the sky was restrained. And the water receded from the earth, going forth and returning. And at the end of 150 days, the water decreased. In the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark rested upon the mountains of Ararat. Now the water decreased steadily until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains appeared. Then it happened at the end of forty days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made, and he sent out a raven, and it went out flying back and forth until the water was dried up from the earth. Then he sent out a dove from him to see if the water was abated from the face of the land. But the dove found no resting place for the sole of its foot. So it returned to him into the ark, for the water was on the surface of all the earth. Then he stretched out his hand and took it and brought it into the ark to himself. Then he waited yet another seven days, and again he sent out the dove from the ark. And the dove came to him toward evening, and behold, in its beak was a freshly picked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the water was abated from the earth. Then he waited yet another seven days and sent out the dove, but it it did not return to him again. Now it happened in the 601st year, in the first month, on the first of the month, the water was dried up from the earth. Then Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the surface of the ground was dried up. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dry. Then God spoke to Noah, saying, "'Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives, with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and that they may be fruitful.' and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by their families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to Yahweh and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And Yahweh smelled the soothing aroma. And Yahweh said to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And I will never again strike down every living thing as I have done. While all the days of the earth remain, seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. This is the word of God. You may be seated. What we find in these 22 verses is, as I said, three facts that when combined teach us that our faithful and powerful God is in fact making all things new according to his perfect timing. You can see these three facts on your outline. Number one, verses one to five, God is great. Secondly, verses six to 14, man is small. And then number three, God's promise endures, verses 15 to the end. So follow with me, starting in verse one, where we will see our fact number one, God is great. Then, God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark. And God caused a wind to pass over the earth, and the water subsided. Now let me just say that although God's greatness is here in verse 1, note that this verse starts with these words, Then God remembered Noah. Glancing back to chapter 7, you may recall that chapter closed with God's mighty devastation, his mighty military victory, wherein he prevailed through the flood over a rebellious creation. As we'll see in verse 1, this is still that great, transcendent, omnipotent, conquering God, freely exercising the power of his will over a creation that is pictured as tiny and helpless in the face of that divine power. But these are the opening words, then God remembered, or then God was mindful of Noah. And not just Noah, but all the beasts and cattle, all the other living creatures that were with him as well. And you may recall how we saw in chapter 7 that Moses was intentionally using the language of creation to describe the task he gave Noah of bringing all animal life with him into the ark. And so there is a hint of that creation or recreation here again with the fact that it is not just Noah, but the animals with him whom God remembers, whom God is mindful of. We see this also as God caused a wind to pass over the earth and the water subsided. If you turn just a few pages back to the left, back to the very beginning of Genesis, chapter 1, the end of verse 2. Chapter 1, verse 2. At the end of the verse we read, And the Spirit, the word ruach, breath or wind, it's the same word, the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Now this is not to say that the Holy Spirit, who is clearly present there in chapter 1, not to say that he is present in chapter 8 here in the same way, but there is a clear illusion here. These texts are intentionally tied together in a way that communicates something like this that God is accomplishing his recreation according to the same power with which he accomplished his original creation. And what is the effect of God's power here? That the water, the mighty waters that had prevailed mightily in chapter 7, here in chapter 8, verse 1, the water begins to subside. Verse 2, also the fountains of the deep and the floodgates of the sky were closed. And the rain from the sky was restrained. And the water receded from the earth, going forth and returning. And at the end of 150 days, the water decreased. God remembered Noah and all the life of creation with him in the ark. And so he sent his wind. And the mighty waters begin to subside. God, fully in charge of his entire creation, closes the fountains of the deep. He closes, literally the wording here is, he closes the windows of the heavens. He closes the windows of the heavens. And due to God's power, God's action, his creation, even as it had obeyed to bring the flood on the earth, his creation obeys his will that the floodwaters should subside. Now I want you to notice something. Did the water subside immediately? No, we read here that it took some time. Actually, that it took quite a bit of time, 150 days, five months. Now, think about this. This is very much in the context within six or seven chapters of the creation account. And Moses, of course, still the same author, has included here multiple allusions to that text. What did God do in those first two chapters of Genesis? He created everything simply by speaking it into being. And how long did it take? Six days. If the God who spoke everything into being in six days wanted to cause floodwaters to disappear from the earth, how quickly could he do it? He could do it in an instant, right? With just a word. And so he must have good reason for letting it take five months. It's been 40 days of deluge, and now it's going to be an additional five months of waiting for those floodwaters to decrease. Now think about this for just a moment. Think whether the situation in the ark for Noah was one of ease or one of difficulty. Noah and his wife and his sons and their wives with him, eight people, the only eight people left in the entire earth. They know that the whole world, except for them, every man, woman, and child outside the ark has been swept away in God's flood of judgment. They know that it's up to them to repopulate the earth. They know that it is up to them to keep all the animals on board fed and watered and cared for, because these are the animals God is going to use to repopulate the earth. And so, do you think this would have been a moment for peaceful calm or for nervous anxiety? Do you think this would have been a moment where joy and contentment would have been easy? I have to imagine quite the opposite. You could say that in a very real sense, the weight of the world is on Noah's shoulders. He's already shown that he's a man of action. God showed him a plan and he worked to build the ark for a hundred plus years, even while he preached righteousness. And so can you imagine the temptations to bitterness? and discontent, and impatience. As you know, you preached righteousness, and the world that didn't listen is now dead outside the ark. And here you are, caring for the only life still in existence. And God is going to let the rain that it took 40 days to fall, he's going to let it now take five months to recede. We can see this here in the text, as we see how God intentionally draws out The difficulty and discomfort and toil he has given to his faithful servant. How might you see this connecting with your own life? We all know what it is to experience discomfort. Does the Lord have you in a season where you wish things were different? Does it seem perhaps like God is causing your difficult season to last way longer than you would have liked? Brothers and sisters, consider that God is showing you here that he, in his wisdom, does this kind of thing intentionally with his children. Perhaps Noah doesn't even see it here, but we will see as the rest of the text unfolds that God has his reasons for causing a season of difficulty to last longer than we would like. Beloved, God is great. He is in complete sovereign control of every detail. And he can be trusted to do good to his people. You, beloved, can trust God to do good to you, including even through the extended duration of your trials. Continuing on in verse 4, we do indeed find evidence of God's intention here, the fact that God is intending this for good. Verse 4 In the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark rested upon the mountains of Ararat. Now the water decreased steadily until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains appeared. There are two things I want you to notice here in these verses. First, and this is something we've seen already, but I want you to continue seeing it. Notice Moses' carefulness to provide the exact historical timing of these events, and this will be the case repeatedly here in chapter 8. He even gives us here a geographical marker, the mountains of Ararat. God wants us to know, and he has given us this knowledge through the writing of his servant, Moses. God wants us to know that this is history. He wants us to know that this is our history. I think it might drive this home well to describe how this hit me as I was working on this sermon. Although this might sound a little strange at first. As I was working on and actually had finished my translation, I think this was a week ago yesterday, that day I ended up at Costco with my family. And I found myself standing there by the cart. Uh, It was a really busy day at Costco and Kelly and Luke were getting a sample, so it was taking a while. And I was just looking at all those people, thinking, you were with Noah in the ark. And you were with Noah in the ark. And you were with Noah in the ark. And I know I'm probably the only person in history to stand in Costco thinking that, looking at everyone. And I realize you may need a bit more explanation on that. Hebrews 7, verse 10, says that Levi paid tithes to Melchizedek, because he was still in Abraham's loins. And yes, it was that somewhat obscure text I had in mind that talks about the fact that we, in some sense, are really present in our forefathers. Just as I was in Adam as the first man, I was also in Noah as the one man to whom human life was narrowed here in this text. Friends, my existence and yours depended entirely on God preserving human life through Noah and his family. And so, yes, I can say with confidence that this is my history. This is our history. You were in the ark with Noah. Everyone in Costco was in the ark with Noah. Everyone in the world was in the ark with Noah. God gave all of us life, physical life, through Noah. God was keeping his promise to us through Noah, through the obedience of his servant as we've seen since chapter 6. So that's the first thing, the historical reality of this. As you E4M ladies have probably heard repeatedly from Dr. Chow, this is history actualizing theology. This is God bringing history to pass that both models and teaches and proves and demonstrates his theology. That leads us to the second observation I want you to see here. What does the ark do in verse 4? It rests. See that in the text. The ark rests. Do you recall what Noah's name means? Do you remember Lamech's proclamation, picking up on the gospel promise of Genesis 3.15 when he named Noah? That this one, whose name means rest, this one will bring us rest. And here we see, at least in part, the fulfillment of that messianic hope. He has caused the floodwaters to abate, and he has caused the ark finally to rest. So again, what we have seen here in these first five verses is that our certainty about the timing of new creation is bound up with the fact that God is great. And that this great God, by the perfectly timed exercise of his power, decreases the waters of the flood so that the ark containing all life on earth finally finds its promised rest. Moving on to verse 6, we find a significant contrast leading us to fact number two that secures our hope for a new creation. First, we've seen God is great. Now we see man is small. Picking up again in verse 6. Then it happened at the end of 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made. And he sent out a raven, and it went out flying back and forth until the water was dried up from the earth. Then he sent out a dove from him to see if the water was abated from the face of the land. Do you recall what I had said, and I emphasized this, the literal wording back in verse 2, that God had closed the windows of the heavens the great god who is in heaven was sovereignly operating the windows of heaven so that as we read elsewhere he could say to the flood waters thus far and no farther and in fact it's time to retreat back and what did the waters do they obeyed the word of their great god who is in heaven by contrast here in verse 6 we find little Noah looking up through what was probably a relatively tiny window which he had made. And notice that. It's, it's, it's an added detail in the text. He had made this little window. And in comparison with God's all-seeing view from heaven, how much do you think Noah could see? Well, apparently he pretty much couldn't see anything because he proceeds to send out two birds so that he can get some kind of sense for what's going on outside the ark beloved this is how it always is god always has this omniscient eternal grand perspective of everything he's doing and here we see especially in his moment of difficulty here's noah looking up through his little window and can't see anything but he's trusting god's promise as we'll see And so do you see the contrast? God, operating the windows of heaven, is great. And in comparison, man, Noah, even though he is the keeper of all life in the ark, the man Noah is small, and his perspective is so limited. Noah is small, but even with his limited view and his smallness, Noah must know that he should take some action in anticipation of being able to leave the ark to resume life on the earth. And so he sends out a bird. Now I expect that you might be like me, not knowing a whole lot about different kinds of birds. But clearly we find in the text there is some kind of difference between a raven and a dove. And actually that becomes pretty significant in the text. Did you know this about ravens, that they belong to the group of carrion birds, which are famous for being scavengers and dead animal eaters? I'm not sure whether this would have occurred to Noah before he sent out the raven, but the raven didn't return to him, and he would have known this, eventually it would have occurred to him, that it would have been content landing and feeding on the carcasses that had floated to the surface of the water. I alluded to this a moment ago, but it bears repeating. It's hard to overstate the imminent sense of death and judgment against sin, which would have been apparent to Noah and his family, even though they had been preserved in the ark. Although they had their lives, here they were, contained with all living creatures in earth in a single ship, with all the dead literally just outside the walls of the ark. And whether he thought of it at first or not, it would have occurred to him after the raven didn't return that it was out there feeding on the death that was all around. And so Noah sends out a second bird, a dove, which incidentally God's law categorizes as a clean animal, unlike a raven. And unlike the raven, the dove is not content to land on corpses. On the contrary, we read in verse 9, But the dove found no resting place for the sole of its foot. So it returned to him into the ark, for the water was on the surface of all the earth. Then he stretched out his hand and took it and brought it into the ark to himself. Notice here that the play on Noah's name continues, that the dove found no resting place for the sole of its foot. And so it returned to the ark, Noah. Commentators are struck by the tenderness and the beauty of the language here. Again, the end of verse 9. Then he stretched out his hand and took the dove and brought it into the ark to himself. The dove had gone out and found nothing but death in the world. And so it returns to the ark where life is. And Noah, the one who represents rest for the creation, Noah receives this dove back to himself back to the life that is in the ark. Continuing on in verses 10 through 12, we read that Noah sent the dove out twice more. In verse 11, the dove returns with evidence that life is indeed being restored to the earth, as in its beak was a freshly picked olive leaf. Finally, in verse 12, the dove had finally found a resting place for its foot and did not return to the ark again. In verses 13 and 14, we find yet more historical details of the timing of all this. Verse 13, Now it happened in the 601st year, in the first month, on the first of the month, that the water was dried up from the earth. Then Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the surface of the ground was dried up. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dry. Noah, in his smallness, had waited on God. And God, again, in his greatness and in his faithfulness, had operated the windows of heaven and the fountains of the deep, such that the floodwaters were stayed and receded. And again, according to God's perfectly measured timing, which you have to imagine seemed agonizingly slow to Noah with what would have been the conditions in the ark, not to mention all the death outside its walls. With verse 14, we find that the earth has finally been returned to a condition suitable for life. Now think for a moment again about this would have been like for Noah and his family. As I've noted before, given the long lifespans recorded in Genesis and the generations that are recorded, the population of the earth was likely in the billions before the flood. Again, can you imagine how overwhelming this thought would have been that Noah and his family were now to return to the earth as its sole inhabitants? As many of you have heard from this pulpit many times, including as an observation from the creation account earlier in Genesis, God's people are dependent on God's word to know what to do. I don't know what to do with my hands until God tells me. I don't know what to do with my eyes until God tells me. I don't know how to be a husband, how to be married, or how to be a parent until God tells me. I don't know how to be a church member or a repenter until God tells me. Likewise, for Noah and his family, they certainly didn't know what to do at this point until God told them. And we find, starting with verse 15, that God had gracious and hopeful words for Noah. And with this, we start in fact number three on the outline. We've seen first that God is great, and then by contrast that man is so small. We find beginning here that God's promise endures. God's promise endures. God once again gives words of life to his servant Noah, starting with verse 15. Then God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and that they may be fruitful and multiply on the earth. This, you may have recognized, is the clearest language yet in chapter 8, picking up on the exact same wording God used to describe the original creation back in chapter 1. God is reiterating his promise to Noah. Through Noah and his wife and his sons and their wives, God is putting creation life back in the earth, and he is giving them the same mandate, which in a real sense is the same promise he had given to Adam and Eve. Noah, who embodies rest for the creation, is the servant God would use to restore life to an earth that had been crushed under the weight of death. God's promise endures. And we find, as always, that where God's promise requires an obedient servant, that God provides what his plan requires. In verses 18 to 20, Noah again obeys God, responding in worship. Verse 18 So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the ark went out by their families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to Yahweh and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. What we see here is indeed that God's promise endures but I don't want you to miss this. The way God's promise endures is through the obedience of his servant, Noah. This is something we've seen already, but again, I want to make sure we keep it in view. Sometimes there can be a tendency to look at Old Testament figures especially and focus on something we can consider a failure, like what we find later when Noah becomes drunk in the next chapter. So that we can say, see, Noah failed, and that's why we need Jesus. But that is exactly the opposite of Moses, and therefore God's emphasis in the text. And we see this repeatedly as we read back in Genesis 6, verse 9. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among those in his generations. Noah walked with God. Chapter 6, verse 22. According to all that God had commanded him, So Noah did. In chapter 7, verse 5. And Noah did according to all that Yahweh commanded him. The emphasis here is not on Noah as a failure in order to show that we need Jesus, it is rather on Noah as the embodiment of the promise and the perfect obedience of Jesus. As are the rest of us, in fact, Jesus himself is in Noah here. Jesus' human life depends, in a real sense, on Noah's obedience to follow Yahweh's instructions and restore life to the earth. It is through Noah and Noah's obedience, which God calls repeatedly perfect or blameless, that God's promise of the Messiah endures. Now, you might ask, why do I point this out and issue a kind of corrective to the tendency of, of finding an artificial way of getting to Christ from a text like this? And I'll give you two reasons. First, so that we can be encouraged that obedience that is imperfect from a human standpoint is of such value that it is counted perfect by our Father. The more we can look at our spiritual ancestors, even in light of their sometimes really egregious sin, and see the absolute emphasis in the text on their obedience and their righteousness, the more we can be encouraged to believe that God counts our imperfect obedience, even when we've sinned in the weakness of our flesh, we can and we must believe that God counts our imperfect obedience as absolutely perfect and pleasing to him, just as he did Noah's. Secondly, I point this out because looking mainly at the faults of a man like Noah and emphasizing those whereas the text emphasizes his obedience, this can tend to detract from our willingness to pursue faithful obedience. Friends, this is not moralism. Moses is very careful in what he records here to emphasize how this is wrapped up in Noah's trust in God's promises. By faith, Noah is obeying Yahweh, and the emphasis from Yahweh is that Noah's obedience is both perfect and absolutely crucial to his plan. We should see our obedience the same way as far as God is concerned. It is faith itself that requires our perfect, willing obedience, as we see with Noah. Now, on the other hand, we can and we should ask, does that mean that Noah's obedience was without human weakness, or even that it was without sin? And the answer, of course, is no, which is why we find what comes next. Remember, God had told Noah to preserve with him in the ark seven pairs of clean animals. Now, as Noah exits the ark, consider the value of those animals. God is about to give the clean animals to Noah and his descendants as part of their diet, we'll find in chapter 9. For these animals to survive, on which they would depend for food to survive, these seven pairs would need to reproduce sufficiently to populate the earth so that they would be available for food. Talk about endangered species. There's only seven pairs of each left on the whole earth. And so, consider the cost. As it says, Noah built an altar to Yahweh and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Noah is telling God, I surrender all to you. I won't try to do this by my own strength. These clean animals I've worked so hard to preserve and which are part of what I will depend on for food that will sustain my life, they are yours, and I will sacrifice them to you. That's quite a heart, isn't it? Do you recognize that heart? It's the kind of heart God commends in all of Scripture. Everything we have and everything we are, the Bible so often reminds us, is not ours it is not from us. We have nothing that we have not received. It all belongs to him. What kind of heart does it take to be willing to hold loosely? In fact, even to burn that which is the most life-sustaining, the most pleasure-generating, the most purpose-giving things in your possession. What kind of heart does that take? What kind of heart does it take to surrender that which is most important to your flesh. It takes a broken heart. It takes a humbled heart. This is why the sacrifices of God, it says in Psalm fifty-one, seventeen, are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart God will not despise. Brothers and sisters, what does God want you to be willing to? to surrender to him. I'm compelled to give you the answer that he wants you to be willing to surrender everything to him. What do you hold tightly to? What brings you the greatest earthly joy? What does your mind turn to when you're looking for encouragement or pleasure? Is it your plans for the future? Physical wellness, safety, security? Is it your children, your career, your schooling, your reputation, your position, the respect of others? Is it your orderly schedule or your freedom to do whatever you want, whenever you want? I could go on past lunch making such a list and still not list off everything God wants you to surrender. Listen to these words from Milton Vincent's Gospel Primer where he connects this with the cross. When my flesh yearns for some prohibited thing, I must die. When called to do something I don't want to do, I must die. When I wish to be selfish and serve no one, I must die. When shattered by hardships that I despise, I must die. When wanting to cling to wrongs done against me, I must die. When enticed by allurements of the world, I must die. When wishing to keep besetting sins secret, I must die. When wants that are borderline needs are left unmet, I must die. When dreams that are good seem shoved aside, I must die. Beloved, if God's promise is going to endure with us, this is how it must look. As we saw so pointedly in chapter 7, we must be in the ark with Noah, dead to the world, but so very much alive to God's promises. And again, such a heart is so pleasing to God, a broken and contrite heart, and the costly sacrifices that proceed from it are so very precious to him. We read in verse 21, and Yahweh smelled the soothing aroma. In other words, he smelled the appeasing aroma. Something in God, and that something is his wrath against sin, even against Noah's sin. God's anger, God's wrath, needed to be soothed. It needed to be appeased. And it was, it was sued, it was appeased, as the provision he had made for the worship of his servant was returned back to him as an offering, which of course we know reflects the cross, reflects the supreme offering that makes Noah's obedience possible. God always again provides what he requires, he provides the sacrifice. And that sacrifice was returned back to him as an offering through the obedience of his broken hearted servant. In keeping with this, we gain further insight here into what God and into what is going on in God's own heart. Continuing in verse twenty-one, and Yahweh said to himself, "I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, and I will never again strike down every living thing as I have done, while all the days of the earth remain, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat." and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. There are two realities we need to catch here as we continue to see how God's promise endures. First, God has a realistic view of our sin. And God's realistic view of sin pertains even to Noah and his descendants. We saw in Genesis 6 how God looked at all the evil and the same language is used there, by the way. There's an allusion in this text there. And God looked at all the evil which man had figured out how to pile up in the earth. As it says in Romans 1, verse 30, godless people are inventors of evil. It's the one thing we are naturally good and creative at compared to God. And so God looked in chapter 6 at how people with their long lifespans had gotten proficient at inventing evil and loading the earth up under the weight and curse of sin. He looked at all that and he said, enough. And we shouldn't miss this. We see it coming in Genesis. Within just a few chapters after the flood, human lifespans and with them the capacity of humans to weigh the earth down with loads of sin and curse are significantly constrained as the average lifespan goes down to about what it is today, 70 or 80 years. And the other restraining effect, by the way, is at Babel in chapter 11, where language confuses the efforts of rebellion among people. But the age, the reduction in lifespan, is part of the rest God brought to the earth through Noah. Since the earth would never again be as full of sin and curse as it was in Genesis 6, God would never again need to do what he did with the flood. So in a sense, there is double rest. God takes away the long lifespans that lent themselves to long-lived inventors of evil, and he makes it unnecessary to ever do anything so calamitous again. So this is the first reality to catch here. God has a realistic view of our sin, and he has arranged things in light of human weakness, human sin, So that another flood is not necessary. The second reality we need to catch here concerns the correct interpretation of the seasons and the other systems which God has put in place as constant markers of his providence. As you might have noticed, we've seen this previously, we might well think of the Apostle Peter as sort of being the New Testament's theologian of the flood. In 2 Peter 3, starting in verse 3, Peter warns that there will be a tendency for people to look at the constancy of the seasons and other natural systems and draw the wrong conclusions. Peter writes, In the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Did you see that or catch it? People will look at the constancy of creation, Peter says, and they will draw the conclusion that God is not involved at all, and therefore that his promises are empty. In verses 5 through 7, Peter goes on to point out that the biblical account of the flood teaches us that things, in fact, are not always as they once were and that this should teach us further that God's promise of a future judgment is true. We could multiply biblical examples of this reasoning, but let me just point out one other in Jeremiah 31. In connection with God's new covenant promise, which as the Lord would have it, Rod was teaching on in adult Sunday school this morning, And further providence, I walked in just as you got to that section. God says, Through Jeremiah, he directly connects the natural processes established so firmly here in Genesis 8. God connects those in Jeremiah 31 with his covenant faithfulness by which he guarantees the promises of the new covenant. God says this through Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 35 and 36. Thus says Yahweh, who gives these He gives the sun for light by day, and the statutes for the moon, and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. Yahweh of hosts is his name. If these statutes are removed from before me, declares Yahweh, then the seed of Israel also will cease from being a nation before me forever." we must rightly interpret the constancy of the natural laws God has established in his creation. Day and night, seasons, cause and effect, these do not point us to the remoteness of God or, God forbid, to his non-existence. They point us rather to his constant faithfulness. They point us to the fact that according to his perfect timing, by which Peter also reminds us, A day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like a day. God's promise endures. God's promise of both restoration and of judgment. His promised destruction is not idle, and his promised restoration is not asleep. Our great God, in contrast with us in our smallness, is causing his promise to endure. He is constantly, patiently, perfectly making all things new just as He has promised. So what should your takeaway be from all this? Think back to how we started. Think again about your relationship to time. I'm going to ask you now to think about your inability to control time in two respects. First, and this applies most if you feel like you're pretty comfortable where you sit, I want you to think about how you can't keep the next moment from happening. God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases, including as he sovereignly controls and sustains the laws of time. I imagine many of you have heard of Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. All too often, that sermon has been held up as an example of all that is unloving and supposedly harsh about Puritanism. But, and I can't insist on this too strongly, the powerful imagery Edwards uses that sinners' eyes might be opened to their precarious position in their smallness before a great and holy and angry God. Edwards' difficult words represent the height of love and compassion towards people who are in this position, whether they realize it or not. Listen to these words from Edwards. The bow of God's wrath is bent, and the arrow made ready on the string And justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow. And it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. Thus, all you that never passed under a great change of heart by the mighty power of the Spirit of God upon your souls, all you that were never born again and made new creatures, and raised from being dead in sin to a state of new, and before altogether unexperienced light and life, are in the hands of an angry God. However, you may have reformed your life in many things, and may have even had religious affections, and may keep up a form of religion in your families and closets and in the house of God, it is nothing but His mere pleasure that keeps you from being this moment swallowed up in everlasting destruction. However unconvinced you may be now of the truth of what you hear, by and by you will be fully convinced of it. Those that are gone from being in the like circumstances with you, see that it was so for them. For destruction came suddenly upon most of them, when they expected nothing of it, and while they were saying peace and safety. Now they see that those things on which they depended for peace and safety were nothing but thin air and empty shadows. My friend, do not let this be lost on you. This is the lesson. I drew your attention to this from chapter 7 also, that this is the lesson to take from the flood and its aftermath. See again your smallness and God's greatness. And as Edwards says, if you haven't had a change of heart, if you haven't received a broken heart, if you haven't said it is hopeless, do not wait. Today is the day. You are not in control of time. You can't add or take away one minute from the days God has numbered for you. And you do not know if you will be alive in 60 seconds. Repent. Identify with Christ and his death on the cross. Be brokenhearted. Give up your other hopes. And place all your hope in God's promises through Jesus, the only one who can save you. The second way I want you to think about your relationship to time is this. If you have placed all your hope and trust in God's promise, of a new creation in Jesus, then you can and you must trust him also for both how and when he is bringing those promises to pass. If your hope is in Christ, then it should be the case that you with Paul are groaning in this body, longing for what is mortal to be swallowed up by life. And it should be the case that you are hard-pressed as yes, there is a measure of joy in God's earthly gifts of work and family and friends. But the sorrow of this body of sin makes you long for that day when you will finally see him and be like him. Brothers and sisters, as you leave today and as you go about your tasks in the rest of this day and the week ahead, be reminded of the great expansiveness of God's perspective. He is there operating the windows of heaven. As you wait from your little vantage point, from your little window, as you wait for those promises he has made to come to pass in their fullness, you can trust that he has given you a good word about how you are to wait. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. This is the heart from which Noah worshipped and sacrificed. Even as death and difficulty and all sin's effects pressed in on him, he showed us what it is to surrender himself, his life, and all his earthly good to God's perfectly timed will. And so will you, even today, surrender your hold on whatever you might be tempted to define as peace and safety. Will you give up your hope that things, whether things in your family, things in your marriage, things in your friendships, will you give up your hope that any earthly thing would be as perfect as you wish in the timing you would have set? And will you look instead expectantly at the promise that is already coming true in Jesus, that the great and mighty God of new creation is making all things new, In his perfect timing. Please pray with me. Father, we are small and you are great. We thank you, Father, that we can take comfort and find hope and have confidence in the fact that you are operating the windows of heaven. The fact that you bring difficulties and even extend our difficulties in this life for your good recreating purposes. Father, we thank you that you have given life to your church. Father, that the power of the Spirit who hovered over the waters at creation and the wind that you sent to cause the waters of the flood to receive, to recede is the same power with which you have made your church alive through your Son. Father, may we look on him whom we have pierced and may we mourn. Father, give us the broken heart with which you are so pleased. We are impotent to produce that heart in ourselves. But Father, you have been producing it in and among and through the testimony of your people for the ages. And so we ask, Father, that you would do that once again here this morning. We ask in your Son's name. Amen.